Hello and welcome to Empire Sports Talk. I am your host, Roman Gennaro. We have a very special episode this week, and I want to get right to the point. But before I do, let's do some housekeeping from around the league. Trey Turner hits a grand slam late in the United States quarterfinal matchup against Venezuela to lift the Americans to the World Baseball Classic semifinals, which will be played later today. It is Sunday as this is being recorded, and the championship will be held Monday, that is tomorrow, for the World Baseball Classic championship. There's a, a, a lot has gone on in the World Baseball Classic, which is basically baseball's version of the World Cup or the Olympics. It doesn't happen very often. comes around every f- few years or so. I believe the last one, though, was was in 2017. The U.S. won, so they are looking for a back-to-back championship situation. Many people have took to Twitter and social media saying that the World Baseball Classic is a, is a useless exhibition and should not be played because as it stands, the players that are playing, the Major League Baseball players that are playing in the World Baseball Classic are missing the end of spring training with their clubs to take part in the World Baseball Classic. And we've seen several players, such as Freddie Freeman, Edwin Diaz, Jose Altuve, and others, get hurt in the World Baseball Classic and risk missing time for their Major League Baseball clubs. In the case of Edwin Diaz, he will be out for the season for the New York Mets, which is tragic, and we wish wish all the best to Edwin Diaz. That was a scary injury, but it prompted a lot of people to call for the end of the World Baseball Classic because it's hurting the real, the real games. Um, the loudest critique of which was Keith Olbermann, who called it a useless exhibition. First, He said, first Freddie Freeman, now Edwin Diaz. This useless e- exhibition is costing teams and players for the real games. Make it stop. If you think the World Baseball Classic is meaningless and useless, you're not paying attention. The players that are playing in these games, many of them are saying it's the most fun they've ever had on a baseball field, including players like Mike Trout and Mookie Betts. The global landscape is getting is getting to see players like Shohei Otani do his thing for Japan, or Ronald Acuna in Venezuela, or Mike Trout and Mookie Betts for the U.S. The entire world is getting a chance to see these players. And these players are beyond thrilled. It's the highlight of their careers to wear their country on their chest to represent their country in a way that they are not otherwise able to do so. And after Freddie Freeman got hurt for Team Canada, he didn't say, man, I shouldn't have played in these meaningless games. He said, I let my team down. It matters to these players playing in these games. It matters to these players to win the World Baseball Classic Championship. And so for anyone who says it's useless, you might as well be saying that the World Cup and the Olympics are useless too because they're not for any regular season title. They're not for any professional sports league championship, but they are their own entity in which athletes get to get to represent their countries and express their pride in doing so. So to look at a few injuries and say, oh, this shouldn't have happened, this, this, this baseball classic shouldn't exist is kind of a cowardly response because players – in any league, in professional sports, they get hurt all the time. Injuries happen at any level, from t-ball to the highest stage. And Gavin Lux 
got hurt and is out for the season for the Dodgers in spring training. Justin Turner is hurt for the Red Sox in spring training. You want to cancel that too because players need that. And a lot of players that are playing in the World Baseball Classic now would tell you that, that they need this too. They need this as much as they need spring training, as much as they need regular season. So to call for the end of World Baseball Classic because of some injuries to your Major League Baseball team's roster, a few, which are back, I mean, we're not rooting for injuries, but they're part of the game, is to ignore the feelings of the fans and to ignore the feelings of the players that love it so much. 48% of households in Puerto Rico tuned in to see Puerto Rico versus Dominican Republic. Japan's quarterfinal game was one of the most viewed events in Japan ever. And we're calling them meaningless? I don't think so. March Madness is well underway as we're recording this. It is the first Sunday of the tournament. It is the second day of the second round, and it has been a wild one. Two one-seeds, Purdue and Kansas, are already out after being upset in dramatic fashion. Fairleigh Dickinson became the second ever 16-seed to take down a one when they defeated Purdue on Friday night. Arizona got taken down by Princeton, who continued their magical run into the Sweet 16 with a victory last night against Missouri. They're doing so as a 15 seed. And one seed Kansas fell to Arkansas last night. to punch. So Arkansas punches their ticket to the Sweet 16. The only one seeds left through three days of this tournament are our title favorites, Alabama and Houston. So as this tournament continues, I imagine it'll, it'll just get wilder. Has your bracket survived? I know mine has not. My, ch my final four is still intact, but that's about it. So I hope your, your bracket is doing as well as it possibly can through all this madness. They call it March Madness for a reason. Aaron Rodgers is, for all intents and purposes, a New York Jet. It is not official yet, as the Packers and Jets still have to work out comp compensation, so, so the trade has not been made. But it is a foregone conclusion that Aaron Rodgers will soon be wearing the Gotham green. It'll be interesting to see how he handles the New York media, as he has been known to be a man of few words and to call out media for false reports. And so I think, I think New York and Aaron Rodgers will mix like oil and milk but it should be fun to watch. With that being said, I want to get I want to get you out to my interview with with New York Yankees amateur scouting and video coordinator Joe Wilbruda. We sat down for about an hour to discuss all things baseball, and it was it was so much fun speaking with him. So I want to get you out to that in an interview right now. Here it is. All right, Joe Wilbruda, thanks so so much for joining the pod. It's it's good to see you, man. It's it's good to see you too, Roman. It's it's been a while, um, but every time I get to see you and, and we get to have a chat, it's uh, always something I look forward to, brother. Absolutely, it's it's been a while. We actually crossed paths in college a few years ago. So, so what is your role right now with the New York Yankees? Yeah, so my role right now, my job title is amateur scouting video and administration coordinator. Yeah, so I basically travel the country throughout the months of January through close to the end of August, uh, hunting down our, our, uh, our top prospects that, that we're most interested in drafting. Um, and then in the summer, we're looking at everybody that's going to be available in the coming draft. So it's sort of like one thing ends and it bleeds right into the other. So, um, but um, yeah, I'm running around. I operate a high-speed edgertronic camera. 
um, for our, for the pitchers that we're interested in. We dive deep into their biomechanics and how their body moves and how their arm works and what their spin looks like. Um, that's that's the main majority of my travels comes from hunting down the pitching. But then again, you know, you get to go to these great schools. Um, you know, I just came from the Duke Wake Forest series last weekend. So hitters on both teams, Brock Wilkin from Wake Forest is out of this world. I think he has 26 hits, 13 home runs. He's hitting like almost 400. So you get to run into this just really great talent. I'm just really lucky to uh, get put in those situations to see these players perform. Awesome. So you, you touched on this a little bit uh, with, with your last answer. Um, when you're traveling and when you're uh, looking up these prospects, what is it that you look for? Even though you're just, you know, running the camera, what is it that you look for in a pitcher or, or, or a hitter to take back uh, to the Yankees and be like, Hey, this, this guy, you know, this is, this guy's going to be something special. Sure, sure. Yeah. So everything we pretty much get a pretty solid lead on because I work very closely with our area scouts and national cross checkers and guys like that. So um, I have a pretty good I have a pretty good um, painting in front of me of what to expect. But then when you get there, you know, you're looking at at, um, at what are they doing? Well, um, do they have a feel for what they're doing on the mound? Do they are they comfortable with all of their pitch types? Um do they, do they have a plan? What does their spin look like? Um, are they using their breaking balls for strikes? Can they land it for chase? Are they comfortable with pitching up in the zone with their fastballs? So it's like all these things that you see on the surface, but how are they executing? And then hitters, you know, you kind of lock in during batting practice and you keep track of how many balls are they hitting hard? How many barrels did they find out of how many swings they took? And, you know, and um, because in the game or as you know are two different things so you want to be squaring up close to probably 80 percent of your balls in batting practice because you kind of you don't know exactly where the ball is being pitched but as you know it's a little bit more controlled of an environment so um always nice to see that from a scouting standpoint guys that are hitting a lot of barrels during bp and then the game you know we look for especially in college hitters we talk about maturity um talk about how are they seeing breaking balls because you get to see some pretty hellacious breaking balls from some elite college pitching. And, um, you know, how can they recognize that? Um, what kind of hitter are they? Do they make adjustments? Um, getting run times constantly judging defensive performance. What's their first step look like? What's their closing speed on balls? Um, do they make all the routine plays? Can they make exceptional plays? There's a, there's a never ending checklist of boxes, that you can go through right. and each player has different ones sometimes. Um, so again, it's, it's, it's kind of important not to get so locked into this cookie cutter thing because everybody's so different and you have to, right. you have to, uh, you have to take that to account every time you walk into the ballpark. I remember a big thing uh, shortly before I, I started my last job in 2018. I, I took, I took a, um, I was reached out to by a, by, by a scouting startup. I believe it was called the the Collegiate Baseball Scouting Network or something like that, and and I was interested, so I I took their test and did different things, and they they had you know videos that they wanted you to watch and evaluate and this kind of thing, and when it was catchers, the, all they wanted to know about was pop time, like how how quickly can he get up and out of the crouch and throw a second, this kind of thing. So you touched on something where where it's you know looking for for different things and you want to see guys squaring up in batting practice. Can you debunk the myth? There's a popular myth that a bad batting practice 
leads to a good game. Can you debunk that right now? Um, I mean, just from a personal standpoint, I can say that 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 certainly happened before. Sometimes you can take some of the worst batting practice on the field ever and you feel terrible. And then for some reason, everything clicks in the game. But then vice versa. I mean, I've had some of the greatest batting practice I've ever taken in my life where, you know, I, I couldn't have imagined putting together better rounds. So I'm sure the scouts like that. And then you go into the game and you, you strike, strike out, out three times. Yeah. You swing and miss a bunch. You just rolling over on balls. It's like, how was your timing so perfect during batting practice with everything? And then it just doesn't lead to the game. So I think it's just sort of like, you just want to get your best swings off in batting practice, whether, whether, whether you're squaring it up or not, if you're just doing, if, if you're feeling comfortable with the way that your bat path is working and you're getting your foot down in enough time and you're feeling balanced, if your results aren't there in batting practice, I would just make it a wash. You were a great hitter in college and uh, more on that later. And you made a lot of contact. What is your thoughts on launch angle, hitting home runs, strikeouts don't matter. What are your thoughts on those things? Yeah, well, especially since getting into the scouting side of things, I mean, you're kind of blinded by what's most important as you're playing. I think even back when I played in the early 2010s, um, we kind of didn't really know all this information yet. We didn't really know what was valued and most important like, like it is now. So, so widely publicized on Twitter and, 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 and different other things and podcasts and stuff like that. So it's incredibly valuable now to show that you have an idea that you can lift the ball with authority. It, it's becoming more important in our game just because um, offensive production is just at an all time. It's at an all time high, but it's just harder to come by because pitching is so good. Right. Right. Um, pitchers are better than ever. So now when we are putting the ball in play, we want to be putting the ball in play with as much authority consistently as possible. So it is a thing. It's, it's definitely valued when you can see a guy repeat a positive launch angle in that, you know, 20 to 35 degree range. We, we like that. And then if, you know, if they're backspinning the ball out, um, hitting the power alleys, left center field, right center field consistently with some force, um, That'll go into a report. We like to see that. It's a contact hitter is is definitely not as valued anymore. If you're a contact hitter, you better be running the bases like a wild banshee. Um, so those kind of tie together. You know, you talk about having all these tools. You know, you want to see at least two close to average, if not majorly average tools in every prospect that you scout. Right. So if you're a contact hitter, you're probably in in a 70 to 80 runner and 70, 80 on the scouting scale is really elite. Um, so um, those are the kind of things you couple together. Power hitters, obviously going to be a little bit slower, but um, they can do some other things well too. Obviously I'm, I'm not a scout, but I am a, I, I do consider myself to have a lot of baseball knowledge and I, I can't, I can get behind the launch angle thing. I, I, I definitely see the merits in it as you were talking about, but for me, I see a lot of guys sacrificing contact for launch angle in the sense that in, in the league right now, it's more and more prevalent that strikeouts don't seem to matter, which to me in a sport that is outcome driven in a sport where you have, you have a definitive amount of chances. One of the only, if not the only outcome that does not move the game forward seems to not matter. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah. Yeah. So you know, it's a great point that you bring up there. I'm glad you did. I feel like I could talk ball with you all day long. Um, you, you know, historically, especially recently, historically, you look at the teams that, have, that are winning the World Series, 
they have a pretty balanced lineup. You got your power hitters in there. You got you got your guys that can hit with juice, but you also have those really tough bastard-like hitters that refuse to strike out. We'll see a bunch of pitches for their guys on deck and their teammates in the dugout and guys watching video downstairs. Um, I really, really, truly feel like like those are the offensive linemen of baseball. Um, those are the guys that really hold everything together for the rest of the crew because um, those things are important. Again, in, in a playoff series, you let your dominant pitcher that you're facing go seven innings in a five-game series. If you're letting three or four of those guys go six, seven innings consistently, you don't get into that bullpen and wear some guys down, you're going to you're gonna lose that series more times than not. Right. Um, you want to see those leverage relievers as early as possible and recycle them over and over again so you get to see them later in the series um, and you'll have better chances of hitting against them. So um, I think the value is is extremely undervalued in those types of players now, and I think they're absolutely crucial in building championship-winning teams. Um, so balance, I still think, is the most paramount. I mean, Smoke Laval used to tell us that Dominant pitching, timely hitting, um, those two things. But dominant pitching is always going to outduel everything else. But if you get those timely hitters um, and you piece together, kind of pass the baton type approach, you got a chance against those guys. Right. I I always laugh because I think it was 2019, the, the Braves were, were needing their right fielder. And Nick Markakis was, was a free agent. And they, they they were talking about, dude, do we bring back Nick Markakis or do we go get Jock Peterson? And to me at the time, the answer was obvious. I was like, you go get Markakis because he's going to put the bat on the ball. He's going to hit 300. Yeah, he might only have 10 home runs, but he's going to hit 300 with 10 home runs as opposed to Jock Peterson's 230, 240 with 30 homers. And to me, it was an obvious choice to pick Mar- to pick up Markakis and they brought him back. And then that was his last year. And then ironically, a couple of years later, Jocktober happens and the Braves win the World Series. So so I I always kind of laugh at that bit of irony where I I found myself as not a scout, not an actual member of a team being like, don't go get this player, go get this player. And then that player, that sec, that player I didn't want ends up making a huge difference a couple of years later. So you mentioned former UNF head coach Smoke Laval. Let's dive a little bit into your baseball journey. Get to tell us from when you played to now kind of kind of your journey in in the sport. Sure, yeah, I mean, starting I guess at high school, I had a pretty pretty unique path. I'm from uh I'm from Youngstown, Ohio. I grew up there. I played baseball there through high school, everything like that. Um never was highly sought sought after up there. Um People thought I was good. I heard people thought that I was good and okay enough to play at the next level. But um, unfortunately, the the schools in my area collegiately didn't didn't see that. So I went a very interesting route. I actually tried to play professional baseball right out of high school, believe it or not. It was the only aspiration I have. It was the only thing I wanted to do. It was a pretty, pretty uh, naive decision that I made at the time looking back. And, and then to fast forward, I got very fortunate. Um, I went to play in the Arizona Winter League in Yuma, Arizona, the winter after I graduated high school. Didn't go to college, trying to play professionally. This independent ball team had a really good couple months out there. And I'm like, wow, I'm actually going to get a pro contract probably. And um, my manager out there, Mike Mike Marshall was his name. He played for the Angeles Dodgers in the 80s. And he won a couple World Series with them. I believe he was an all-star one year. And again, talk about meeting the right people at the right time. 
uh, had this conversation with him and he says, Joe, he said, you just turned 19 um, and you, you haven't gone to college yet. I said, no, I, nobody wanted me to, nobody wanted me to play for them um, in Ohio, this and that. And, um, you know, the division three schools maybe here and there, but you're talking about some, some pretty, some pretty steep costs that come involved with that. So Mike Marshall um, set me up. He said, stay by your phone. I'm going to give you a call in the spring and I'm going to tell you where you're going to go play junior college. I know junior college coaches in California, New Mexico, Texas, Oklahoma, everywhere out West. So school starts in like August, right? Um, most of the time I didn't get a call until like July 1st. And he's like, Hey Joe, I've, I've got your place. That you're going to play. You're going to play at Midland college in Midland, Texas. You're going to get a call tomorrow and you're going to show up there next month. And that's where you're playing. And I was like, great. So couldn't have been better. Had two great years at Midland Junior College in Midland, Texas. You know, again, I just I just can't express how how great of a first collegiate baseball experience that was for me with great coaching staffs, um, great players. They're nationally ranked every year. Um, so to fall in that to fall in that situation, I was extremely fortunate. And then Smoke Laval actually knew my head coach at Midland. They crossed paths in the SEC. Um, Smoke was at LSU, obviously, as a lot of people know. And David Coleman was coaching at Texas A&M University. They kind of hit it off during that time. And, you know, sometime in the early to mid-90s when they were both over there, they kept in contact. UNF second baseman was leaving in 2000 and the 2011 season. And it was kind of late. And I had a couple of chances to play at other places, but just didn't feel right. Um, I was getting calls from Virginia Commonwealth, Coastal Carolina, stuff like that. But then when Smoke was calling my junior college coach, he's like, man, we need a second baseman really bad this year. And he was like, I got a guy. He's, he's not really fully committed or wanting to play at these other places. And I think he'd be great for you. That's literally all I needed to hear because I trusted my junior college coach with my life. And he knew this person who was going to be fair to me and give me an opportunity to play. Um, a guy who had obviously a great resume in Smoke. The, the one thing I'll never forget, I know I'm talking too much. You can cut out as much. Oh, as you're good. You're good. I I'm... can just ramble and ramble, but Absolutely. I remember these things so vividly. Smoke Laval, he said he's been there and done that. He's been to the College World Series. He's done everything you could possibly imagine on the baseball field. He said he's doing this because he loves the game. He's doing this because he wants the best for his players and to build up the program at UNF. And I was like, what more could I want to hear? He had no agenda to personally – personally advance his career it was all doing it for us and it was all doing it for the program and I think that's what really stuck with me and that was the the easiest choice I could have made coming to UNF was hearing those words and having two people in my corner that I trusted how did you make the transition from college ball to working with professional teams yeah yeah so again it was kind of a lot of a lot of blind luck going into it because as you know, I was going through my surgeries at the end of my UNF career. I tore my labor in my shoulder and I got my teeth knocked out. And I remember that very vividly. That conference game, that's just, you know, that's one of the most infamous moments of not only my baseball career, but any part of my life um, for sure. But so, you know, I was talking to, to uh, Colleen O'Connell, who was one of the SIDs at UNF, and I was a communications and media relations and public relations major. So I was very close with Colleen again and I'm just Googling things and I, you know, I stumble across the the baseball winter meetings and I'm like, what is this? I've never really heard of it. It wasn't that big as it is now either. You know, at MLB Network now in the winter time, like it's the most widely publicized thing, but it wasn't like that in 2013. So I noticed it was in Orlando. I was living in Jacksonville. I was 
going through recovering from these surgeries. And I was like, yeah, I think I'm going to do this. So Colleen, she got me involved in the volleyball program. I was writing press releases for UNF, um, feature stories, things like that. Um, so I was fully ingrained in trying to get my hand in the media side of things, which Fortunately for me, fast forward, I actually, my first internship landed with the Yankees in media relations. I got to spend the spring in Tampa. I got to go to New York the rest of the season. It was Derek Jeter's last year, which oh, was insane. Go. The media influx at that time, just being around all that stuff and watching him and how much of a pro he was sort of, sort of rubbed off on me. I mean, how does it not? Just literally getting to watch his last season unfold before your very eyes, being at every single home game, being at every post-game press conference, being leading up to, you know, his last game, as you're familiar with at Yankee Stadium, he gets that walk-off hit against the Orioles. And um, Anton Richardson scored the winning run. I'll never forget that. It's going to be a trivia question. It's going to make a lot of people a lot of money one day. Anton Richardson came in a pinch run. And I don't think anybody else on the planet scores um, scores on that play except for him. Being the play to the plate was insane. I believe but, that um, outfielder was Nick Markakis. It probably was Nick Markakis for <laughs> sure. And I, a lot of people would have, Hated him if he would have made an on-the-money throw. I think it was like a slight short hop to the catcher, but, you know, it could have made things really interesting. After that, I knew it was just a, a very short-term internship. It was like nine or ten months. It was great, though. Again, for a first internship from a professional standpoint, getting to see all that stuff firsthand and, you know, working in the Yankees' front office and having to be in a suit and tie at the first game of every series, it was just like, man, this is how to really be a pro in the baseball industry. And then... You know, but like from my background of playing and stuff, my 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 energy and my passion always lied on the side of between the lines. Whatever I can do to benefit the club between the lines, even if I'm not playing anymore, if I'm able to be involved in some decisions or or have some kind of opinion that can affect wins and losses on the field, that's kind of where my passion's always been. So next thing I looked for was was scouting opportunities and what can I do to to do that. And they started off as basic video internships at different minor league affiliates. I worked for the Washington Nationals for one year, Pittsburgh Pirates for two years in mm-hmm. AAA, which which really grew me. I got a lot more responsibility there. Um, I got to hold uh, hitter and pitcher meetings, going over video, going over some notes with some of our hitting and pitching coaches. So when I felt that sort of involvement and the players genuinely needed my opinions around, I was like, this is what I want to do. Um, and then, you know, fast forward to now with the Yankees being involved in amateur scouting and literally looking at players that, you know, we see probably thousands of players collectively as an, as a department every year. And we get to make about 25 to 30 choices. You make 20 in the actual draft and you can make your non-drafted signs. So, I mean, you're talking 30 at the most out of a thousand or so players. Um, it's a lot of homework that gets thrown in the trash. But again, you have to do your homework. I'm, I've had people ask me, oh, how was the player that you went to see? People outside of baseball. I'm like, oh, I was, you know, a little below average. I was expecting a lot better. And they say, well, why did you go? And I'm like, well, if I didn't go, then I wouldn't know. Yeah. Um, and you have to go. You got to be diligent. Um, you got to do the things that you got to see the players that you don't even that, that, that you don't expect much from. They might be the, the greatest ones that surprise you yeah. and uh, vice versa. You might see the blue chip guy that just doesn't perform for you. But um, collectively, again, that's that's a good thing for the department to have some friction. I see a guy bad. Somebody sees him really good. Then you got to talk about that. Why did I see him so bad? Why did you see him so good? What were the variables going on that day? Um, it's a giant puzzle piece, man. It's it's a lot of fun. 
I mean, look at guys like Brandon Nimmo, who are from Wyoming, that doesn't have college or doesn't have high school baseball. So he has to play American Legion ball and and the Mets took a chance. And now he's just signed his big contract to stay there. So, yep, you never know. Your career has had from being a player to being on the media side has has taken you to a lot of places from from Youngstown, Ohio, to Texas, to Florida, to to Indianapolis, to New York, everywhere. everywhere. So what's your best travel story? What, what What's a good, whenever you're talking about either your playing days or or tra- all this traveling you do now, what, what's something you tell people like, oh man, this was crazy. I'll tell you the craziest thing that's ever happened. Back in 2019, when I was still at an affiliate, I was with Scranton with the Yankees and I was responsible for organizing travel on top of the video and scouting responsibilities. And, um, so of course, 100 and 140 games were not enough to decide who's going to win our division between us and Syracuse. So literally, we're in a dead tie at the end of the year. There's usually an off day, and then you start the playoffs. So dead tie after 140, and Syracuse was only like two hours away from Scranton. So of course, the league just doesn't figure out a way to like find a champion in between us through stats or whatever. They're like, all right, we got to play a game 141. We're going to play it in Scranton and the winner of that game is going to go to Durham immediately and play the next day in Durham's. I can't remember. It was like 11 hours or so on a bus and with no off day in between, it was like pretty unique. So I was talking to Syracuse's athletic trainer cause he organized travel for them. So I already had this bus set up. Like we were either going to, we were either going to get on the bus and go to Durham or the bus was going to drive back to where this company's from. And so I'm talking to this guy and I'm like, Hey man. So, cause he was trying to figure it out too. Cause we didn't know who's going to win and who's going to go. I was like, Hey man. So I got this bus. Like if you beat us, like you're more than welcome to take it. So it was like, we were basically playing for like a pink slip. Like the bus was on the line. Like, like who was getting on this bus to drive to Durham. So um, again, you can't plan anything because you don't know what's going to happen. Although, like, they they saved room blocks for us, this and that. Fast forward through the game. It's like the seventh inning. We're down, like, 12 in the seventh inning. We're losing by 12. I got people coming in already talking about, like, oh, yeah, like, booking flights for later that night, things like that. Next inning, we cut it to, like, six. Ninth inning, we end up tying the game. We come back from 12 runs. So, like, again, unbelievable comeback. Um, and then we end up winning the game in extra innings. And – have to do all this organization and get on this bus to go from Scranton to Durham midway through there's traffic. There's like a tree down on the road. There was like all these storms. I literally get out of the bus at like two in the morning. I'm talking to this fireman and about like, when is he going to have this road cleared? Cause it's the only way we can get through long story short. We didn't get in until 7. AM to Durham. We we're supposed to play at 7 PM that night. And we had mother nature on our side. There was like a little hurricane like off the coast. And fortunately for us, our game got rained out that day that we were supposed to play on virtually no sleep. But um, that was like the craziest 24 hour experience that I had, like not knowing if we were going on this trip to encountering a tree falling down in the middle of like a road that we couldn't get through Um, getting in at 7am having to play, you know, 12 hours later, it was, it was a bizarre situation. Man, that sound I don't envy anyone involved in that from players to coaches to you having to call the 
the other travel guy. That that was quite a story. Going back to your playing days, what's what's your best college ball memory? Uh, it's it's got to be uh, my senior year. The um, it was like the second game of the year. We were playing West Virginia, and uh, I had a walk off base hit in game two, um, and we had. Let's see. We definitely won the first game in kind of dramatic fashion. I'll actually never forget the way that game ended, too. Ryan Roberson was our first baseman, and um, I think Paul Carmaris was playing third base, and it was like bases loaded. Paul stepped on third, threw it to first. I swear to you, he barehand caught a ball against his chest from third base and, like, secured the double play to win that game. And then game two, the next day, I had the walk-off base hit to have us win that that opening series. And I guess a team like West Virginia, and you know how it is being from a mid-major, you like to beat those, those big teams and they came down to play us. And that was just really good. And then again, it's baseball is such a funny, funny game. Um, there was like three players from that West Virginia team that were on my Scranton team in 2019, Ryan McBroom, Billy Fleming. Um, so I, I always bragged to them about that. Like, Hey, remember uh, 2013, you guys came down to UNF. Like, yeah, that was a, uh, that was a good time for us. I'll tell you, I believe that wasn't your only walk-off hit that year, if I remember correctly. I think you had another one because I think that's my best memory. I thought that was the one. No, I think I think you had another one because I will never forget this, and I'm almost certain it was you. It was a Sunday against Mercer, and this was more about the crowd than on the field. So for for whatever reason, Mercer's fans had come – to UNF and just started talking trash to us on the other side, telling us yeah. to, cause they won on Friday night and then we won on Saturday. So on Friday night, they were, I think we, I think we got beat down on Friday night. And, and uh, cause I think at that time Mercer had one of the best hitters in the country on their team. If I, if I remember correctly, Ch I can't... Chesney Young, his name was. Yes. Yes. And he had this really weird batting stance. I'll never forget that. Um, yeah. But Mercer's fans kept telling us to go home and go to bed. They said, they said, go home, go home. It's like, we are home. You're the visiting team. And, and the whole weekend was just back and forth. I literally thought there was going to be a brawl in the stands. <laughs> and I was there and I was ready to swing. If I'm being totally honest, we win Saturday and we let them hear it. And they have nothing to say Sunday. It goes down to the wire. You come up to the plate and walk it off. And our side of the stadium went insane and just started waving bye to Mercer's fans who turned and walked away without a word. Well, and that's good that that it uh that you remember it so vividly like that because um you know I, sometimes those, those things that you get so caught up in it's like oh man like you're just competing your tail off right there in the moment but like that's great to hear from from your standpoint of where I, you're. I will never forget that. I will never forget that. And then years later, I think it was my senior year in 2015, like like the voice of the Ospreys, Richard Miller comes down because I because I get there. I got there like an hour before the game, like I always did and uh, for four years. And uh, and 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 Richard walks by and I'm pretty sunburned from the day before because I didn't believe in sunscreen at that sure. time. And he notices and he says, hey, aren't you here every every day? And I was like, yeah, I'm here. He's like, do you want to come up and do the pregame show? And I said, sure. And it was just after Smoke had won his 600th career game. Like it was it, it was it was a few days after. I think he won his 600th on the Friday and this was Sunday. 
And, uh, and so one of the questions that Richard asked me was, what is your best memory from the games that you've seen of Smoke's career? And I brought that up again. So that has stuck with me. And I don't think I've ever told you this, but, and obviously I haven't seen as many hitters as you have in person, but you were one of the best hitters I've ever seen in person. Like you, you were talking about how you, you thought that, that Ryan Roberson was never going to make an out. You would go up there and I would think whatever we need him to do right now, he's going to find a way to do it. Whether, whether it's a base hit, whether it's moving the guy over, getting the guy in, you know, scoring these three runs, he's going to make it happen. That's uh, you know, it's funny you bring that up because that was honestly my mentality the whole time. It was like, I, I kind of knew what my role was. I knew I wasn't an exceptional power hitter. I knew what my strengths were and I just stuck to that. And, and I just really loved the camaraderie of celebrating wins after the game. So whatever I could do, whether it was just laying down a bunt or like you said, just grounding out the second base to maybe score a run from third. Um, if that can help contribute to us celebrating in the clubhouse after and just having a good time and celebrating a weekend win, um, that's what it's all about. Because um, when you look back, you look about all the, all the fun memories that you have celebrating with your teammates. And I'm sure the guys now, I mean, I still follow along so closely with UNF baseball and, and man, they've been on some kind of a power surge lately. I'll tell you what. I um, actually, Hey, I'm going to interview Donnie DeWeast as, as well. Oh, good, good. Donnie. Yeah. Uh, and what a, what an absolutely exceptional talent he was to come through and, and what he's able to do, what he's been able to do professionally, it's just a great testament to the players that we can get to that program. Um, and, uh, you know, that's what we're doing. We're trying to find the next Donnie Deweese out there, um, for yeah. sure. <laughs> that, that guy was unbelievable. And he's, and he's rehabbing an injury right now. Uh, let's hope for the best for his injury and, and for continuing yeah. to play because he's still, he's still chasing that dream. Um, yeah, but and we talked about guys not making outs i whenever i'd see donnie i thought man i thought he's gonna hit a home run every bat the man was a machine and, <laughs> and like and, and and there was one year in particular where he and corbin olmstead would hit back to back and and it was like they were having a a, a you know what contest yeah yeah yeah. at, yeah, at yeah. the plate because whatever corbin would do donnie would do right after him or whatever donnie would do corbin would do the next inning and it was and it was just unbelievable to watch and then Corbin would come in and close the game with a low 90s fastball and a slider from hell. And just I've always said that I don't understand how Corbin didn't get a chance at the next level because he may not have thrown 100, but he was the hardest thrower I've ever seen. It was not fun facing him. I mean, I in the inner squads, I just remember like if I didn't hit his fastball early in the count, I was I was done because he was going to throw a slider and it comes out looking like his fastball and it was so late and sharp. I was like. Like, it's out of my hands. He, he, he may have thrown that fastball at night. It may have been officially clocked at 91, but I swear it came out of his hand at 147 miles an hour. Dude, it was, it was a firm pitch, man. It was, it was pretty firm. Um, okay. couple more questions. You're good. I, I believe you would be with, 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 with your scouting uh, experience and different kind of things. And, and the things we've talked about with you on the field, I believe that you would be an excellent hitting coach. But what are your aspirations? Yeah, yeah, great question. Um, coaching is certainly an aspiration of mine. Um, 
I didn't mention this earlier, but I get to coach um, an underclass um, high school um, event in San Diego every year with the Yankees. I get to be in full, full uniform on the field and coach bases and talk to our players about infield hitting, things like that. Um, some pitching. I mean, I don't know that much about pitching other than than just what I see because I don't have the experience. How to it. face it. <laughs> how to, yeah, basically, basically how to face it. So um, I've always been, you know, enamored by um, teaching and coaching and just sort of bringing out the best in others. So whatever way that that's, that's possible, whether it's on the field in that role, um, it's continuing to scout because within our scouting uh, development here at the Yankees, like we actually do have a decent amount of our scouts, scouts that go to these summer events that get to coach these players. And then when you're on the field with them, you just get to know them so much better. And that's honestly half of our job is, sitting down with the players, their families, getting to know them. And then when you're on the field with them, you know, that's, that's about the most intimate setting that you can get from a baseball standpoint. Um, so, you know, either that be, be, being assistant director of amateur scouting, it involves a lot of office work. It involves a lot of uh, logistical arrangements with your area scouts and cross checkers and then your own schedule. Um, so, you know, I, I've had my fair share of time in offices doing um, office work in, in baseball also. So, you know, there's a couple of different avenues I can go. Coaching would be great if the right opportunity were to come up professionally, collegiately, whatever, or, um, or just sticking with what I'm doing and continuing to progress to become a national cross checker, to become an assistant scouting director, um, whatever I can do to, to keep, um, keep going out there, finding this talent, making people better. Um, I, I, I always tell people my favorite part of the job is it, this is the, the people helping people industry. Um, and that, that's sort of, I, I really look forward to the relationship building the most. Tell me about Anthony Volpe. Oh yeah. Anthony Volpe. I mean, what an absolute, what an absolute great kid that we got in our organization. Um, I'll tell you what, it was really unique. Um, I'll give a shout out to our area scout in the Northeast, Matt Hyde, who signed him. Um, he built such a strong relationship with him. And this is a great, um, this is sort of a great like segue into like becoming a great scout like Matt Hyde is. Um, he developed such a strong relationship with him that Volpe actually was telling other teams, if you draft me on draft day, you're wasting a pick because I'm signing with the Yankees. Um, he, and he, you know, he grew up in that area um, up there in the Northeast. So he was really familiar with the Yankees, but our area scout, built such a strong relationship with him that he literally said, this is the only team I'm going to sign with. And it worked out. And like, look at the way his career has blossomed. Our scout believed in this player. He saw some talent that he really liked. He pushed for him on draft day. He made sure everybody in our front office knew about him. And then the kids just going out there and having a blast. I mean, if you've been watching the spring training games. I mean, I mean, listen, if Hyde has not made a name for himself yet, <laughs> he, he is now because he, picked this he found this guy and he did yep and now on the big stage there might be riots if Volpe is not the starting shortstop on opening day which starting starting shortstop for the Yankees has to be one of the most high pressure positions in all of sports and this guy is like the guy yeah and now the thing is like he's young and he's a shortstop and he's getting this opportunity like I remember when Jeter retired like we got Didi Gregorius there's obviously a lot of pressure on him but it was like 
This is Didi Gregorius. He has a great history. We know who he is. He's performed at the major league level. Now Still it's is. like rewind to 1996, and it's like, oh, like remember when we brought up this this lean shortstop and Jeter and this and that. So it's like we're just drawing so many nostalgic blasts from the past with him. But the kid just gets it. He plays the game such the right way, and it just seems like, you know, he just has that little bit of aloofness about him that he's he's like just young enough to just really not even understand the mag like the magnification of the situation he's in and that's great because you're able to play so loosely and free and everything's just lining up for him and i couldn't be more happier for the kid can't can't wait to see it i i'm gonna be I'm, fun i'm very excited um one thing we were talking about yesterday before before this interview as a hitter as a scout as maybe a hitting coach one day we'll see what are your thoughts on the, the topic that is kind of taking Twitter by storm right now? Um, the ending of that New Orleans and Mississippi Valley State game with that umpire. For those that may not have seen it, um, the umpire called strike two on a very questionable uh, call. It was low, but the, but the catcher did a serviceable enough job trying to frame it, although it was very clear that what he, that's what he was trying to do. The batter, understandably, was not thrilled and and you know drew a line with his bat for the for the ump. The ump didn't like it, but that happens all the time. The very next pitch was basically in the dirt, and the umpire called strike three, and that was the end of the game. What what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, so there there's a few different ways to look at this because really, you know, you can you can say that both people were wrong in this situation a hundred percent. I remember back it was, geez, I can't remember if I was in junior college or it was right before I was in college. I may have still been in high school. Bryce Harper in a junior college playoff game drew a line and he got ejected immediately. And I was like, okay, so now I actually didn't even think about this till right now. So if the umpire would have ejected him immediately when he drew the line, I think that's fair game. That's you showed me up right here in front of me. Like you can't do that. You're ejected. But the umpire let it go on. He did not eject them. The next pitch, he just decided to take personally. Was that not even close. Basically okay. in the dirt, you know, stolen at bat away from this kid. Um, if it was that big of a deal, then he should have been gone immediately on the pitch before. But the fact that he sort of held that grudge and resentment into the next pitch and said, I'm going to – I'm No I'm matter what. Conscious decision, wherever this pitch is, it's going to be strike three. I'm sitting you down no matter what. And it's just yeah. like – that's such a shame to see because it's it's not about the umpire. It's about the guys that play between the lines. And these guys are competing their tails off 24-7. And this is all this is all they got. I mean, each at bat, you could tell that kid was laying on the line. He was up there like it was his last time he was ever going to be at the plate. And it mattered to him, and he cared, and he wanted to be successful for his teammates. It was just really disappointing to see the way that that was handled. You know, the play, players are going to do things out of passion because, yeah. again, it's, it's so important to them to perform. It's all they got. Um, the yeah. umpires are there to do their, the umpires are there to do their best job at officiating the game. Yeah. And long story short, he did not do his best job at officiating that at bat. No, so, he, like you said, the umpire would have been within his rights to eject the player for drawing sure. the line. We've seen it several times, but he didn't. And so at that point, that needs to be the end of it. That I literally don't even think this would have been a thing. If you that, would reject them, I think it just would be like, oh, just another another casualty. Or, 
or if the at bat had continued as it was supposed to, if that had been called a ball and then bat, the the at bat continues and then oh for sure you know it's not a thing. But he made it personal, and he said yep. and he said you made me angry, and instead of talking to you about it, I'm gonna end it now. And then he and and then he calls the strike three and books it to yeah. get inside. Like he he just he sure. just almost robotic turns on his heels and goes. And, yep. and, and, and like I told you, when the catcher for the opposing team is holding the batter back from, from getting yep. the umpire, that's how you know it's bad. Yeah, it became a much bigger production than it certainly should have. And kudos to that catcher for, you know, stepping in there and kind of taking control of the situation a little bit. But yeah, just not what you ever want to see out there from any level of baseball, to be honestly, from, from Little League to, to Major League Baseball. You just never want to see officiating taken so personally because guys are gonna get mad all the time i mean competition breeds some 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 moments where where you're gonna have conversations with umpires you're gonna do things that you regret and um you know but but being a professional on the other side from an umpiring standpoint you gotta you gotta be able to compose yourself um probably even more than the players to be honest for sure the same with ref with referees and basketball your job as an umpire and it's and it's terrible in this way your job as an umpire is to not be noticed absolutely and the second you're noticed it's not for a good reason and no and, and so for that reason it's 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 a no glory position but you go into that position knowing that that's what it's going to be and that umpire has been suspended indefinitely for for his role in that um which I that that was the right call. I I I I never want to wish ill on people, whether it be suspended from a job or whatever. But there's no place for for that for that kind of personal vendetta at a at a Division One college level of a kids game. Let's be honest, of a it's a game, and so I I I definitely appreciate your thoughts on that issue. It definitely fired me up to see something like that. And, and there's just no place for it. Uh, that being said, that, that incident prompted a lot of people to say, this is the best case we've had for robotic umpires. I don't know about that because I, I, I still think there's such a great human element to this sport. I think sometimes umpires get too much power in situations like that because they don't face, there's no challenging them anymore because of replay there's no there's no challenging umpires anymore there's still a human element that has to exist and so that being said there are a lot of rule changes going on in baseball right now what are your thoughts on the ones we've already seen with 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 the universal dh being put in last year and the extra inning rule and the bigger bases and the pitch clock well what are your thoughts yeah there's a lot of things um going on i think the universal dh is 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 great just because you know, I understand that there's that there's that that outlier group of pitchers who love to hit and take it to heart and like really really love to hit. But the majority of pitchers, I mean, you're it's it's just a liability having they don't, them at the they, plate. They don't want to be there. Most of them. They don't want to be there. Most of them. Where our game is now is just like you know we're trying to to to, to push for this this offensive influx of the yeah. game. And it's like I I thought it was unbelievably bizarre, honestly, for as long as it went on, having the National League have their pitchers hit and the American League didn't. It was just like, what are we doing here? Like it's, this, you're playing the same teams. It's like, that was really 
always bizarre to me that it actually took that long to get that one implemented. As minimal as it is to have pitchers who like to hit, it's even less minimal to have pitchers who are good at it. Like sure, like Madison Bumgarner and Zach Greinke and Max Fried yeah. are, are all really good hitters at the plate. But and I I was one that when that rule came down, I was like, I don't know. I I love the strategy that goes into yeah, you right. know, that goes into pinch runners, pinch hitters, this kind right. of thing. I I love that and I miss it. Sure. But at the same time, it's great to not have to think about. Oh man, we have two run. We have runners on second and third, two outs, and here comes Bartolo Colon. Right, like, right. Y- y- you know, so so I've definitely come around on that. But what are your thoughts on, say, the most controversial one to me right now is the pitch clock? Yeah, the pitch clock. I mean, it, it it's tough because you've been seeing all these videos out there, too, where guys are losing at bats because of it, getting called out on strike threes to end games because of it. Um, you know, pitchers walking guys in, in tough situations because of it. You know, as, as sad as it is, I don't know about sad, but. But um, we get we always adapt. Like you think about replay in general. Like I remember when replay came into baseball, and like, we couldn't believe it. We're like, oh my god, like this is gonna ruin the game. And now it's like, look at how used to replay we got. Like it's just like, wow, it's really saved our game from a lot of calls that could have really changed baseball history. I As, think about the, yeah the perfect game with Detroit and Cleveland all those years oh. ago. And it's like that was literally it was a perfect game that was gone wrong. Yeah. Um. Armando Galarraga's name will forever be the the World Series. I think it was like Cardinals and maybe Blue Jays or something. There was a missed call at first base that literally, I think, changed the outcome of the World Series winner Mm -hmm. one year. Mm -hmm. And it was just like, you're talking about major catastrophic decisions. You know, the pitch clock, it's so multifaceted because I've actually heard of a few players recently this spring that have tweaked some things in their oblique and other areas, like from a hitter standpoint, because everybody's a little bit more rushed now. Right. So it's like before you used to have to step out, you can breathe, you can feel yourself, you can let your body be engaged in the situation. Right. And now it's like, Oh my God, like everything's so tight. Everything's so tightly wound. You don't have a second to relax. So that that was interesting to me when I was hearing some players that were tweaking a few things because of it, but you know, it's just going to take some getting used to. And we've been wired a certain way. The players have that played this game to where, you know, you're gonna have to break these habits and that's all it is. Um, you know, so I think um, it was, I, th- I think it was Pete Alonzo in spring who, who had one faced one at bat with the pitch clock struck out, went back to the dugout, be like, I can't do it. I can't do it. I can't do it. It's all too rushed. I can't do it. Next at bat homers. Hey, there's, then, there's a short term memory for you. And he comes back to the dugout. He's like, I'm fine. It's fine. And yeah, right. as a hitter, do you think you would have, violated a few times i'll tell you what myself personally i would say no because i was always in the box ready to hit like i get it like we all need those moments to really take in the situation and think a little bit but i mean my goodness i I, I was in there ready to hit all the time so myself personally i'd be okay but i can get some of these guys that really have these routines i mean you think about no more garcia with his wrists and his name this has is, come up in every debate of this pitch clock. Sure. Every single like, one. Absolutely. Um, I th- I definitely think there needs to be some tweaks, and that's why we're bringing it out in, in spring training. Yeah. For, for my, and you can tell me what you think about this. My thoughts are it needs to be shut off in the ninth inning. We, we need to not use the pitch clock in the ninth inning because you see uh, 
one of the first games that I think it was the Braves and and I forget who they were playing. The game ended on a full count sh- uh, vi- uh, violation. I right. that that can't happen. Like games can't games can't end that way. So so th- these are just my opinions. The the sh- the pitch clock needs to be shut off in the ninth inning. And, or 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 extras whatever. And if if a player because this was brought up on the flipping bats podcast with Ben Verlander, whereas if a player gets brushed back or 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 falls to the dirt let's say you need a minute to compose yourself when that happens because because a 95 mile an hour fastball just came inches from your nose and so in that case i think they need to shut it off for the next pitch yeah i i totally agree with that it's gonna be interesting watching playoff games in the world series this year like if, if everything stays as is it's gonna be like wild to me like in the ninth inning of a one run game with bases loaded and stuff. And it's just like, you're playing like this two times speed baseball. Yeah. I don't think, I don't think that at least I, I I haven't heard if they're going to take it into the playoffs. Cause as of right now, I know the ghost runner disappears in the playoffs. Um, But we have to make sure. And that's why I said in the ninth inning, it needs to go away is we have to make sure that games that the ends of games aren't affected by this because it, because as of right Right. now, as of right now, it's not clear. Because sure. because they say that you have 15 seconds, base is empty. You have 20 if there's runners on. You have 15 if the bases are empty. But as the hitter, you have to be ready by eight seconds. And so sometimes as a fan, you're looking at how much time is left on the clock. And there's eight seconds left. And they call the violation. And you're like, what just happened? So I th- yeah. there, there's, not a, there's not clear enough lines as to what is a violation and what is not. And... It has too much power right now. It, 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 it has too much power over the over the games right now. And I I definitely yeah. see the merits when when a 14 to 11 game ends in two hours and 25 minutes or when a when, when a pitcher strikes out a batter in 20 seconds. Like that's that's great. But as of right now, and that's why I have I feel the way I do about turning it off in the ninth or or turning it off for a pitch when when a guy gets brushed back. Is because we can't let it we can't let it actively control games. It needs to be like a fifth umpire, whereas for sure you you don't know it's there, and if you do, it's a problem. Yeah, yeah, I couldn't agree more. You hit the nail on the head with um, if you're having to think about this too much, the game is already hard enough as it is. Just playing the game at a high level, as in Major League Baseball, so um, complicating that is going to be an issue. You know what I've been thinking about actually, because um, I'm a Defense is my favorite thing. Like, I like playing defense. I think about, I think about, again, bringing up a blast from the past name. When I played behind Mike Renner at UNF, it was like the best, most fun defensive game ever because he got the ball. He was ready to go, ready to pitch immediately after every pitch was thrown. So I think I want to see what's going to happen at, from a defensive standpoint this year. If errors are going to be less because your defense is going to be so much more engaged now all the time. Right. I think about those long innings where you have that pitcher on the mound that just takes forever to throw, and you're standing there on defense for 13 minutes, and you don't even get close to a ball coming your way, and you have all these things going on. So I think defenses are going to be a lot more engaged, and I think errors are going to be less. That's think, my hot take on the pitch clock. I think I think you're right. I think errors will be down, but I think what you mentioned before, I think injuries are going to be up. I think guys yeah. are going to have oblique issues. They're going to have hamstring strains. They're going to have these, these minor – tendon issues 
because yeah. because they're having to speed up everything they've done for their entire lives in the blink of an eye. Yep. You gotta and, you gotta play the game loose. It's a game that you have to play loose and relaxed. And for sure. You know, maybe with the pitcher with the pitch calm thing, it helps a little bit because as soon as you throw the pitch, like the pitcher has the ability to like, okay, like I know what I want to throw next. Yeah. Wait for like all these signs to cycle through this and that. But still it's just like Man, when you try to speed up the game to an unhealthy level, that it, it might become, I don't know. We'll see what happens. I um, am I am in the camp of, I, I, I'm a purist when it comes to sports. Sure. So, in, so in my mind, if you're going to, if you fall in love with baseball or football or basketball, you do so at a young age and it has nothing to do with rules. Yeah. yeah. It has to do with, you see, you see a player, you see something, you see, you know, you see Michael Jordan, you see Derek Jeter, you see Aaron Judge, you see, you know, for me, Peyton Manning, you know, and, and, and you're like, wow, this game is amazing. And you gravitate towards the poetry and the ability and the skill and the flow. And then when, when you try to add rules to quicken the game, to, to, prevent players from playing too many minutes from th- for this, for that, for the reason of trying to gain younger viewers, you're, you're, you're trying to forcefully gain viewers. And, and if you do too much to change the game, not only, I mean, you might get some viewers, but you're going to lose more because you're going to start to lose the people that fell in love with the game naturally. Yeah, no, it becomes a lot less fun for sure. And it, Again, it it will deter people away from enjoying the game for the reasons that you brought up. And, and, and I think that's something that can be said for all sports right now, because all sports are going through these sweeping changes that aren't necessarily welcome universally. And so I worry that because falling in love with something naturally, and this includes a sport, falling in love with something naturally is the most beautiful thing there is. And to and to see a six year old see a guy hit a baseball for the first time and be like, that's it. That's the thing. I mean, I used to watch NBA games on the TV and I would have my little tykes hoop in the living room at this end and I would recreate every move that every player made. Yep. And that's what that's how you fall in love with a game. It's not because the game went from three hours to two hours and 43 minutes. Sure, sure. That's that's not going to do it. And so I feel like the the efforts they're making to gain new viewers, those viewers are going to be, I don't want to say superficial, but they're going to be casual at best. And those aren't the people yeah. that fill the seats. Those aren't the people that bring in the, yeah. like that. It's, 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 the correlation doesn't match up to me. So I think it's a fine line. And that's, that's, that, 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 that's just my thought. Yeah, no, it's, it's, those are, absolutely great points i mean you brought up some things that resonate with me when you think about why you fall in love with the game or why you fall in love with people in general and get into a new relationship or this or that it's kind of funny how it all comes together you know i'm thinking i don't want to sound like an old guy right now but um (laughs) but i mean man kids these days are growing up with this instant gratification right in their hands all the time and i'm wondering i'm just wondering this is pure speculation but like you know, are we, is baseball trying to keep up with this new generation that, oh, they just want everything fast anyways. They got the iPads in their hands. They can get anything they want on this. 
So like oh, do, do sure. younger kids see the game differently than you and I saw it when we were growing up? Um, they see the it on we phone screens. They see that. it on phone screens for sure. We, um, we had to lock in. You couldn't rewind the game as it happened. You had to literally sit there and watch. And like, I was with you. Like I loved that. It took a lot of time because I was able to think because it's, a I was process. Able to it's, it's strategy in that situation, but now it's like, Oh my God, something just happened. You can pause it, talk about it, rewind it, watch it. Right. Right. Like, so I, I know I personally like watching games on like a 30 minute delay and then I can, sure. I, I can go through commercials for the first like five innings, but that's just me. Oh, but, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but to, to, to your point of instant gratification, like, and social media and seeing it on a phone screen, like baseball has survived b- before this generation. It's going to survive after this generation, baseball and sports in general are timeless. Generations are not social media is not. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. So, for sure. So when you try to tailor a timeless entity to something that is temporary, that's that's when you have a problem. So I've kept you a little long. Sorry about that. Um, let's let's have some fun here right at the tail end. Uh, All right. Give me your way too early World Series prediction. And I, oh, I, man. I, I know you're a little biased, but let's try to muscle through that. <laughs> sure, sure. Way too early. Well, I'm gonna. I'm obviously gonna say us and the Yankees. Okay. And I'm gonna. I'm gonna talk about the path that we can probably get there. It's. I mean, number one, we never in years of late. I can't. We've just been limping into the postseason every year. So. Right. Um, we have some injuries right right now that we're dealing with. So hopefully get that stuff all out of the way now and go in strong. I mean, we lost Michael King last year, who was just absolutely electric out of the bullpen. I think that could have changed a lot of dynamics to how we use our bullpen and having him back healthy for a full season would be great for our bullpen situationally. And, um, you know, I think with this youth that we have now with um, Cabrera, Peraza, Volpe, obviously it's inevitable that Volpe is going to be up there and make an impact. I don't know if it's going to be at break camp, but he is going to make an impact this year. It might as well be now that they've kind of done away they've kind of altered the like years of control situation, you know, because, because you saw guys like Torkelson up opening day last year and you saw, so, so they might as well, because clearly the, clearly the guy's ready, you know? Yeah. Anytime, anytime uh, you get that youth in there too, that kind of, again, that that's part of the blend too. Like I was talking about power hitting and contact hitting in the same lineup. I think there's something that goes with youth in a lineup with veterans and having that. Oh, for sure. Oh, for sure. The Astros, I mean, Jeremy Pena last year, their shortstop was just like out of this world. And like people gravitated towards him. He had that different energy about him. And that's what these guys, Oswaldo Cabrera, his energy is unmatched that I've seen firsthand. And oh, is a is a great kid and just brings so much positivity to the to, to that lineup. I I think he's a, a a very I know people recognize his talent, but I think it's very it's very underrated what he brings um, in the intangibles to that lineup. Um, and then Peraza too. It's like, we got sure. some excitement coming around the corner and I think that's going to lead into some success that can bring us that championship. So, so you said the Yankees in the American league, what's the matchup? Do, do oh, you man. think, do you think national league? Um, let's see. I mean, the Padres have just been on this, like they've been on this like seesaw of like, almost being great for like so long that I feel like this is going to be the year that, 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 that they just somehow put together all those puzzle pieces. I mean, they got the players in place, obviously it's just 
the timing of their success has been bad. They, all their success has come early um, in the season, and then they've been falling off late. I think now that they've been doing that for a few years, I think they can figure some things out to have a much better later run to the postseason. Right. So um, I feel I'm like gonna, right. So 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 you're going to say the Padres? You're going to go? Yeah, gonna, and, and you know I, I'm just trying to play a little devil's advocate too because gosh, they haven't been there in so long and I don't want to go with a, a classic team that's been there so much. So I want to jump off the page and I'm going to sure. go with the Padres. What I worry about is I is I feel like the Padres have a little bit of, of the Yankees syndrome right now because you say the Yankees yeah, kind, right. of, kind of limp into the playoffs and they sure. and, and they have the pieces and they look great. They On paper, you're like, that's it. You know? Yeah. And, yeah. And, and then when it comes time for the playoffs – it's just not put together. So that's, right. that's kind of what I worry about a little bit. Um, it's not as bad as the Mets who are like, Oh, they're, they're the world series pick and they don't even make the playoffs, but that's right. Thing. Right. Um, okay. So you're going to go Yankees and, and, and Yankees. Padres. Okay. Who g- give me a dark horse team that sneaks oh, into the playoffs and, and makes some noise. That sneaks in and can make some noise. Let's see here. Geez, well, I'm gonna. I don't know. I've been I've been hearing a little bit like like the Phillies. That was such a that was such a flash in the pan type moment last year. But I think I think they're gonna run it back, and I think they're gonna make more noise than people think they're gonna they're gonna make this year. I mean, the Phillies that was an unbelievable run they put together there with some of the adversity they faced. But I'll tell you what, I think I think they're gonna I think they're gonna run it back and give people a, a good run for their money this year. I think the Cubs are going to make some noise. Cubs, okay. Because uh, they got Dansby, they got some, they got yeah, some they pitchers, some they get, they, they got some relief. I think, I, I don't know if I'm not saying they're they're going to challenge for the championship, but I think sure. with with you know it's right now it's the Cardinals division because the Brewers can't seem to figure it out. Yeah. Um. So I think I think they're going to challenge the Cardinals. That being said, I think the Cardinals for me are going to are could make the series. Um, okay because i because i love arenado and goldschmidt and that combination and and that's scary scary lineup yeah and and they have jordan montgomery and they added wilson Contreras. and i just think i think yeah that's i think that's gonna be dangerous i like the yankees pick though if if i mean they're they're achilles heels the astros for me we gotta slay that Um, about it they're they're achilles heels the astros and i think if if Volpe comes up and does what he's expected to do, if I think they I think y'all need to go out and get a catcher. Honestly, I think y'all need to go out and get a big name catcher somewhere. Gotcha. No, nothing against Higashioka or 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 uh, Trevino or or, or Trevino. Like I, th- but but y'all have good pitching. Garrett Cole, Nestor Cortez. Y'all you obviously have the offense. Volpe's coming up, and I just think I think when you think about the history of of Yankees championships, there was always a catcher. Sure. Yeah. Yogi Berra, Jorge Posada. Like that, that's my thought. I'm not on the Yankees. I'm not a scout. That's just, I, I, I think the, I think the Yankees need a catcher and I think y'all need to keep people healthy. For sure. I think, I think another dark horse for me is, is you're not going to like it. Boston. Because, okay. if, because if Turner can come, can, can come back from, from that, from getting hit in the face, which they they seem to think he'll be ready for opening day, and they and they've gotten some 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 other pieces uh, this off season. So 
they who they got Duval, who seems to be not 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 a huge signing, but always seems to be right there for teams that are in the mix. Yeah, he he's the he's one of those guys that like when the lights shine the brightest at the end of the calendar, he's like, here we go. I'm I'm comfortable with saying that my prediction is is Yankees Cardinals right now. Okay. Uh, on on paper, on paper, we yep. we, we don't know what's going to happen. You know, I, I got the privilege of seeing Goldschmidt and Arenado last July, and I'm still flying like that. That was yep. that's definitely one of my favorite places and that leads me to my bush stadium is an incredible atmosphere and that leads me to my final question (laughs) give me your top five starting with five your your top five mlb stadiums top five would have to be i really like cincinnati cincinnati has a has a pretty good environment atmosphere i like having the riverboat in the background and just the way that's set up they have a good setup at the reds hall of fame there did you know fun fact if if you hit the ball to the river out of Great American, you've hit it to Kentucky. I didn't know that's where the line is drawn. The, but well, the, well, well, the Ohio River is property of the state of Kentucky. Oh, interesting. Okay. Think about that. Interesting. So, if, a, so, so if it lands in the river, you've hit it to another state. That's a good fun fact for sure. Um, okay. wow. All nice. right. So, so Cincinnati. Cincinnati. Um, let's see here. Oh man, um, where else have I been to out there? Let's see. Tell you what, Baltimore. Baltimore is a fun environment yeah, with Utah Street. Things. Great, and that, that was like one of the first non-cookie cutter stadiums that got built, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, that was the first one they sort of like built differently into like because that, a, cause a that hotel place. is right there. That that yeah yeah, which is hasn't really been done, but now San Diego yeah. has has the Western Metal Supply. Sure. Which is one of my favorite features of any stadium, I think, is the West yeah. Supply Building. Um, I'll put current Yankee Stadium in the middle at number three, just because it's, I mean, it looks pretty identical to the old one, but just um, it's there's, got there's, a lot more, it, it's gotten so much more comfortable, though, like, and it's taken away from that feeling of nostalgia. I remember the old stadium was like, you're walking through these halls that were like this thin, and um but, you know, it's still very aesthetically pleasing. There's something about the facade, the white fencing at the top that just like. Oh, yeah. It's, 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 like, it's classic. It's it's yeah. right up there with the green monster and and, sure. and, the, and the ivy. It's like if it's, you get to walk. If you get to walk through Monument Park, too, it's just that history that's around is just you, like, you know where you are as soon as you see that. Like, it's just it's one yeah. of those identifying elements. Yeah. All right. Well, I had three more then. I, I kind of misplaced where i was going with this but three or i'm sorry <laughs> so still we'll do two one and then one a so two pittsburgh is the most aesthetically yes. pleasing stadium yes that is known to man that that view back there you're in the city it's a big open ballpark it's not that big of a stadium there's only like 30 some thousand seats there it's a very intimate environment it's really cool um and i didn't grow up very far from there so i got to go there a lot so i'm biased but it's a, if you get a chance it's great i've heard they have a cheeseburger where the buns are donuts they probably do. Uh, it's been a few years since I've been there, but I've heard be I, I, I've heard that's a thing, and I really want to try it. And then let's see. My top two are definitely Wrigley. Um, okay. I got to go to Wrigley only once in my life, and just anytime you step into a place like that, and you think about all the history that went into that, and the way those stadiums are built are just different. Loved it, and I just give a slight edge 
got to give a slight edge to Boston. I went for the first time last year to a Yankees Red Sox game and just the structure of that building and where it's placed in Boston is just, again, it's just one of those things you talk about. You think about the people that have stood at home plate there and all the history. Oh, exactly. Exactly. They haven't changed much lately. Wrigley got some decent renovations to their outfield and stuff like that. And I know they did the monster seats and this and that, but it feels old. It feels really old in Boston. And the fact that even Boston's spring training field has like a mini green monster, like it's so cool. You have Um, to like, I, um, Okay, so your number one barely edging out Wrigley is Fenway. I it's I Fenway. I like that Pittsburgh. Every every time I think about that park and that team, I think about I think it was Garrett Jones who like had a son and hit a home run that night, and and that was like the the first instance of of, of like dad power. Like he just had yeah. a son and now he has a home Garrett run. Garrett like, Jones, yeah, it's a that, good name. That yeah. memory is burned in my brain. Like, like yes. it's just one of those things, and, and so. And so, but, but, but I agree with you with some of the classic ones you named, you can't go wrong there. Um, For sure. All right. I will let you get out of here, but I, th- I, I, I want to thank you so much, uh, Joe, for, for uh, jumping on here and uh, the, the, the amateur scouting and uh, video guy for the, for the New York Yankees, Joe Wilbruda. Thanks for hanging out with us. Yeah. Thanks a lot, Roman. Always a pleasure getting to talk to you. And uh, like I said, I can talk, can talk ball with you all day long. I appreciate you having me on and I look forward to talking to you again soon. All right. So that was my interview with amateur scouting and video coordinator for the New York Yankees, Joe Wilbruda. I want to thank Joe again so much for stopping by the podcast and sitting down with us. This is a, this is the first in, in a run of interviews we'll be doing to, to change up the podcast a little bit. And I thank Joe for being the first and taking time out of his busy schedule with the Yankees during spring training to speak with us. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. That's all the time I have for today. This has been Empire Sports Talk. I am your host, Roman Gennaro, signing off. See you next time.